Hello everyone and welcome to The Other Web. Our guest today is Elizabeth Garr, a podcaster, former journalist, television producer and documentary filmmaker. We reached out to Elizabeth to discuss her journey through the media landscape and see if it can inform us on the evolution of the media ecosystem. Elizabeth, welcome to the show. Thanks, Alex. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. So it looks like you've worked in a lot of different media outlets, everything from PBS to the Food Network. What was it like? <laughs> I have worked uh, in a lot of places. I packed a lot of moving boxes through my years, moving to different cities and different jobs. So um, definitely followed my passions throughout my career. So what were the passions, if I may ask? Well, I look back on it and I think the through line has always been uh, curiosity. I've always wanted, I've always asked a lot of questions. And so I started out thinking, well, I want to be a writer. Um, and then people told me, well, you can't just say, I want to be a writer. You need something more specific. So I thought, well, I want to be a food writer because I love cooking. So I went to cooking school right out of college and I did. I started writing for publications, food writing as a freelancer. And then um, because I had that background, I heard that this new network was starting called the Television Food Network. And I just took a risk and I wrote to a name that I found in the press and said, hey, I'm going to be in New York next week. Can I interview for your new network? And I wasn't going to be in New York next week. I made myself be in New York next week. And he said, sure, yeah, we'll take you, young kid with a little bit of food writing background. So that's how I got into television. Kind of just was a little risky, you know, put myself out there. And I was like one of the first employees of the Food Network because of that. So learned a lot about TV that way, that way, used some of my food background. And so I could keep going on about that. I don't know if you want to hear a lot about the early days of the Food Network. It was pretty, it was pretty interesting. <laughs> so I'm curious, maybe less about the food stuff because I personally don't know anything about it. But in general, the network, how do TV networks work? What was your experience like? Well, that one was really interesting because it was actually founded by Reese Schoenfeld, who had founded CNN. Mm -hmm. So he had this vision. He was not a food person at all either. He just was a media person. And he knew that food was one of these untapped areas of the world that people are interested in, and it wasn't out there. And so he said, this is just something that needs to be on the air. And he approached it from a news network standpoint. So there were two shows to start. One with a celebrity guy called Robin Leach, because he knows celebrities draw eyeballs. And the other was our show called Food News and Views, because he was a news guy. And so we had two hosts, and we had a production team, and we put on a news show. And those were the first two, two shows that started the Food Network. And eventually, after two and a half years, our news show got canceled, because people don't want to watch a news, a Food Network with a news show. They want to watch cooking shows and they want to watch dining shows and that kind of thing. Of course, it felt it found its way. It found its audience. But it was interesting to kind of see the network grow from the ground up with a successful news guy. People think that Ted Turner started CNN. Uh, he, Reese really started it. And then Ted Turner kind of came in and made it bigger. There's a whole interesting history about that. So it was great to work with him and a bunch of us who came in People had different aspirations. I wanted to be on air. And so we had all heard about like Katie Couric had been at CNN and that by that point she was, you know, a star at NBC. And people said, um, you know, Reese used to tell her, they called it Chicken News Network when CNN was in its infancy. And Reese said, 
honey, you've got no chance of ever being on air. And then she was this star at NBC. So we all thought, well, maybe Reese will put us on air, even if he thinks. So we would get, we'd be, we had to do everything. I mean, we had to shoot, we had to produce, we had to write. We would sometimes get on air, but mostly he just, we were mostly producers and writers. So since you've had kind of an inside view to what it takes to start the news network, even if Reese was doing it, yeah. what is your view of the evolution that you're seeing now, where it seems like CNN is now one of the larger, more established players, but at the same time, they pay anchors $12 million a year to only draw 300,000 viewers during primetime shows. So something's clearly going wrong there. What's your view? Well, I mean, the whole media landscape has changed so much. This was, I mean, this was in the mid nineties when the food network started and cable was really just kind of an emerging thing. Um, everything has completely changed with streamers. And it, you, we used to, of course, just have the broadcast networks and TV news. I, I eventually then went into, um, local news. Uh, and so I also have the experience of working in a local news market and that whole industry has changed so much too. I mean, when I decided to go, what I wanted to get solid on-air experience. Well, I have a funny story about that. I'm not quite answering your question. I will, I'll try to get there, but I, you can't really get on-air experience, um, in New York City, really, that's not a great way to, to go about it. So I again sort of took a risk and I just wrote to Diane Sawyer, who was a big name at the time. Older people will know who she is. And I just said, Hey, I really admire your career. How could I become you? And she said, Oh, meet with me. She surprisingly took my call and said, I see something in myself in you. So come in, you know, let's have a meeting. And she was so lovely and so wonderful. And she said, You know, you have to go to a small market. However, at that time, that was not the only way because cable was starting. And so there are people at that time in the mid nineties who did stay like worked at New York one, or, you know, there was like local cable stations where you could start on air at that time or in production. So things were changing. It wasn't only that you start your way up in local news. So the whole landscape has changed a whole lot. And obviously viewership has changed so much too. You know, we're not just getting our information from a few quote unquote trusted sources and everything has become so fragmented in terms of, is are there any trusted sources anymore of real news. So, so I run a news aggregator, so I'm well aware of <laughs> how fragmented that's become <laughs> because essentially yeah. we are at the point where you can't trust a few sources anymore. You have to aggregate from a few hundred of them if you that's actually right. want a, di a diverse diet, right? Yeah. I mean, I think that is the smart way to go because you have to try to understand we, we are such a split society. And if you want to try to understand what other people are consuming and believing, you have to try to consume some of what they're actually reading and listening to, to, you know, try to get the full picture of what information is being tossed on the other side of the aisle. Right. So I'm curious about your experience. You said it was mid nineties. Cable was just starting. So yeah, I'm assuming that's almost like the golden age where everything is done right because the result you see is obvious growth for the next decade. So what was being done? How, how were stories being sourced? How were they being selected? What were the criteria? You know, I wasn't at a news network, mm -hmm. so uh, I can't sort of speak to that. I mm -hmm. was at, obviously I was at the Food Network and then I was in local news. Mm -hmm. So in local news, it was a little 
disenchanting, I will say, because it was very, the budgets were very, very tight. And so I was hired as a reporter and an anchor and a producer. You sort of wore all the hats. And so I think I got paid $18,000 a year. And then I, I talked my way up to maybe $21,000 or $22,000 a year for working zero vacation. I mean, you work 52 weeks a year. So, you know, just working and working and almost begging for your job, you know, like it was, they, it was like you were gifted this, this job. And there were times where I worked, which was Billings, Montana. Um, it was an interesting situation. We had a really great group of people, but I think it all depended on who was there, who, what was the leadership, who was in the newsroom. And we could kind of call the shots if we wanted to do certain stories, we could kind of do them. So we got to do some pretty cool stories. We also had to do some stories that I just found utterly boring and really unimportant. I, I don't think anyone is really served by learning about a crash on the highway. I mean, unless it's impacting the whole society. And I mean, there's a lot of just, if it bleeds, it leads, you know, that's an old maxim that is really that, that I I fought for like long stories. I, I did a series on education in Montana and uh, there was a, a Japanese internment camp from World War II. All the people who had been interned were coming back 50 years later to, I mean, there was, I got to do some really interesting, great stories that I thought were actually important, but then there were days that it just felt like I was being sent out on these filler stories just to, you know, fill the newscast and because this is how things were always done. So it was kind of a mix. Sometimes I kept pushing for what I thought was more interesting stuff. And they would, they looked at me and they were like, Elizabeth, we don't have a budget to, this isn't network news. You can't just go do what you think sounds interesting. We have to, this, you're turning this around on the daily. We've got to go just, you know, do your story and get it back, cut it and get on the air and do it. So it's and the the worst part about it though the reason i eventually left is because um in the end i felt like you're not really judged for the quality of your work as much as you're judged for what you look like so it i just was i just got tired of that i thought it's not a meritocracy as much as it is uh oh we already have one of you which meant they had someone who kind of looked like me or was my age or uh this woman came in one time <laughs> She was some expert and she came into all the anchors and she said, okay, I want to see you read on camera. So we, we read our stuff and we actually wrote all, all of our stuff too. We weren't just readers. We, we did the work too, but um, we did that. And then she looked at me and she said, oh, honey, I'm, I'm really sorry to tell you, but in this business, some people have it, that it factor, and, and you just don't have it. And I thought, well, that's, that's not great to hear, but you know, that's just your opinion. And then the next day she came in and she said, Oh, Hey, Hey, come over here. And she slopped all this makeup on me and did my hair all up. And then she said, go back on the set, go and go and read again. And so I did, I really don't think I did anything different. And I came off and she said, now you've got it. <laughs> I thought, all right. So it is hair and makeup. That's it. <laughs> And I just kind of got tired. I mean, I just knew that what it took in that business was just market by market by market. And I wanted to do like more substance, substantive stuff. So. so before we move to the more substantive stuff, 
what you just described, where you are both the owner, talent, and the producer, and the writer, and the stories are sometimes meaningful, sometimes not, and what you look like matters probably more than the stories you do. It sounds a lot like social media today, doesn't it? It sounds like you were uh, essentially an early creator <laughs> or TikTok or something like that, except that on cable. That is so interesting. I've never made that connection, but I I suppose it could be. Yeah, I um, it felt substance free <laughs> at times, <laughs> and yeah, I, I wanted the I wanted the the content to carry it. I understand it's a visual medium. I mean, I wasn't clearly that's part of it, but I wanted it to be a more of a balance. So, so yeah, that, that's just an interesting thought that there's nothing new under the sun, I guess. <laughs> just different packaging, right? Like yeah. technology moves it forward. So it's in smaller bites now with social media and it goes quicker, but it's the same, same topic. But at the same, same time, this is an interesting thing that I keep thinking about. TikTok makes everything shorter, but podcasts keep getting longer. And so it seems like we're just growing in both extremes at the same time. And it's the middle that's hollowing out. Yeah, it's true. I mean, I know a lot of people, it's one reason that I love doing podcasts is because you can have actual substantive conversations that aren't just squeezed into three or four minutes where you have to just go for sound bites. That that was the other part that could be hard about um, doing newscasts, or even when I worked, say for PBS or something, and you do a long conversation, couple hours conversation, but you have to edit it down into maybe a 22 minute, a half hour show, which is really 22 minutes, you know, podcasts, you can talk for a long time and really get into things. So I think you're right. Some people want to consume in small bits, but then you also want to really get into the topic, the information, the person, the ideas, and that you can do in longer format. Right. Makes sense. All right, so PBS was right after Montana. Was, am I getting the timeline right? <laughs> Pretty much. Uh, not not exactly. So I, when I got a little sick of, I thought, well, I'm not just going to bounce all around the country. I'm clearly not going to the network and doing the kind of stories that I want to do. So uh, I was under contract and I broke my contract. And the only reason they let me do it is because I said, I'm, I'm getting out of TV. I mean, I'm getting out of on-air TV because, um, I'm, I'm not like going to a competing network or, or competing station. I wasn't at a network. Um, so they let me out. There was other stuff going on. I had a hard time living in a city in Montana. I was kind of a fish out of water. So there was personal things going on too. I actually moved to Los Angeles and, um, I worked at, um, I worked at News Corp for a little while. That was a little interesting. Uh, a friend of a friend got me, had recommended me for a job as sort of the assistant to probably at that point, the highest ranking woman at News Corp. And she was based in New York and she wanted kind of eyes and ears in LA. And why she thought I could do this job, I really don't know <laughs> because I literally had an office down the hall from well, it wasn't Rupert. I mean, Rupert Murdoch did have an office there, but he wasn't based there. It was Peter Chernin who had was the LA guy. I had this ginormous office. I literally had like a butler type guy who would come in and ask what I wanted in there. I had no idea what I was doing. I had no guidance. My boss was in New York. She would sort of send over these ideas like, uh, find new cable networks we should invest in. And I was like, 
okay. I don't, I was so over my head. I had absolutely no guidance and no idea what I should be doing. So that was a bit of a flailing situation. Then after that, I worked, I did, I was like, I got to get back in my lane, do what I know. Um, Wait, I do want to pause here because I'm sure a lot of people listening to this right now have the same question. How do you get a job like that? (laughs) It was totally connections. And I, it's one of my regrets. I, I mean, I'm happy with how things turned out, but I didn't kind of use, I didn't work it enough because I was clearly not in the right spot, but I should have worked my way into a better spot at News Corp, you know, or at Fox or something of, uh, I mean, I remember I got to go down and hang out with the people who worked on the Simpsons. And I mean, I, there were such cool people and opportunities there. And I just felt so overwhelmed by my lack of knowledge and direction that I couldn't even see my way straight to say, okay, clearly this is the wrong fit, but maybe that is that sort of uh, script development or comedy, or there were so many things going on that I'd be in these meetings. Oh, I'd love to do what she does, or that looks really neat, but I couldn't even see my way there. I just felt like I was under a tsunami. So I was not mature enough to speak up and um, and not assertive enough. I, I regret that. You didn't fake it enough is what it sounds like, because most people in these positions just start faking it yeah. and pretending like they are exactly the person that needs this big office. <laughs> I, I guess I should have. I do remember being in some meetings with other people sort of my age, particularly mm-hmm. a guy. I remember this guy, his, he got clearly got his job because of his dad, because his dad <laughs> like worked there. And he was a very tall man, young man, my age. And I remember thinking, he's, he doesn't know anything more than I do in whatever his nepotistic role is that he's got, but he's doing a really good job in this meeting. I mean, he's really holding his ground in a way that I do not feel like I am. So I, um, I could have done much better. <laughs> All right. Well, still an interesting experience. And then you went off to PBS, right? Yeah. I, um, I worked in, I pr- helped produce shows there. It was, uh, I worked on some shows, like one was called Secrets of the Sequence and one was um, on entrepreneurs. It was really interesting. We got to interview people, modern day entrepreneurs that they paired with what they called sort of old entrepreneurs, you know, like we got to interview Michael Dell and they would, they'd find commonalities between current living people and historical figures. So we kind of got to fly around the country and, you know, interview these really interesting people. I wasn't on air for that. I just got to interview and write and things like that. So between all of these different venues, I could say, what differences did you see? What was each one's unique flavor? Hmm. It's a really good question. I think the way... The way an organization is run from the top really reflects down into every aspect of the work. Um, I was never the boss, I guess, until now, until I started my own podcast. Um, And it's clearly not at the scale of anything that I've worked on. But you really could feel it from everything that I've worked on, the organization, kind of the vision that that they had, um, how, 
how kind of tight of a ship it was, how serious or not it was going to be. Like even I worked for a while at E! Entertainment on their news show, which sounds kind of like it's a joke, you know, I mean, it's E! Entertainment, but it was such a great experience, partly because it was so well run. And even though it was entertainment news, people, they didn't take their job seriously, but they worked really hard. You know what I mean? It was like a really core group because it was very well run and you got in there, people got their assignments. They knew what they were doing. It was a very focused kind of environment as opposed to some other situations like the one in Montana was kind of really haphazard, unfocused. We, it worked out well because it got, it gave all of us reporters and anchors a lot of freedom to do what we wanted to do that could have gone really sideways. You had to have a lot of trust. And we happened to have a pretty fun group of people who were pretty driven. And, but if you had gotten a bunch of super lazy people, I mean, that those shows would have barely gotten on the air, you know? So I think, I think the leadership and the vision really matter. It also sounds like what you're describing is that the seriousness of the news and the seriousness of the business are completely <laughs> orthogonal. <laughs> <laughs> that is true. I think I think it's just it also yeah it's kind of personality dependent too. I mean you could have some really goofy people. I one of the funniest people I know was working in hard news with me, and some pretty serious people were working in entertainment news. <laughs> so it doesn't really matter. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm curious what happens when you get very serious people to build a really serious business around completely nonsensical news items. Uh, it it uh. could be. <laughs> Some of what we're observing right now. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, I guess if it's, if they're just being serious and nonsensical, but they're at least not uh, malicious. (laughs) I mean, it's not malice, right? It's just a profit incentive. But there's, I've started at some point collecting bad headlines from very serious outlets just to kind of show people what the problems are and why we exist. And I have plenty of these examples, starting with CNN, which you mentioned, right? Like yeah. they, have a, they have headlines like, stop what you're doing and watch this elephant play with bubbles. That was in their national news. Right? And they tweeted oh it with links gosh. to it, et cetera. So there's a lot of these serious organizations doing very unserious things right now. I mean, things really have changed so much. I will say, I I remember noticing when screens, TV screens became so full of, you know, lower thirds, like lower thirds used to, or chirons, we would call them, used to just come up as identifiers, like John Smith, you know, pilot or whatever is speaking. And now it's, everything is so cluttered. Sometimes you've got things on the right and you've got or you've got crawls going constantly. And it's it's just like, there's so much information. And then like you say, there's they're tweeting out at you, they're sending things. And it's just, if it's truly important, you know, like if it's a, if it's a major national crisis, maybe we do need this information. But when they'll say breaking news and it's something, it doesn't even matter. You know, it's, it's the boy who cried wolf at this point. We, we don't need it, the level raised to 10 all the time. I think there is also a big collection of these breaking news chirons, especially from CNN with like breaking news, panda in zoo gives birth to baby panda or something like that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Or, and the other thing that kind of bugs me, I know that because they're 24 hour news channels, there's so many of them and they need to fill the time, but it's like, you know, 
debt crisis looming, debt crisis still looming, debt crisis coming closer to an issue. Like they're, they're leading us to, there's going to be a problem. The problem is still out there. We're on the issue. We're on the case of the problem, but it's like, it's a, it's at high alert all this time rather than like, you know, right now is, is the moment of actual crisis. We're going to make it a crisis from a few months out and then all the way past, like it's this overarching crisis. It's too much after, like, especially after the election, I, I kind of had to be on a bit of a news diet. I, I can't, I can't take it all at times. It's a little exhausting. I tend to recommend that to everybody. Uh, I think <laughs> the last stat I've seen is something like 42% of American adults have checked out of the news completely. They avoid it consciously mm -hmm. because it is so overwhelming. I mean, the debt crisis is a good example. We've had one since the 80s, since before I was yeah. born. <laughs> it's slowly progressing, but there is no actual crisis at any point. <laughs> so, yeah, it's an interesting yeah. one. Do you think there's kind of a systemic solution to this? Or will it always be like that? That once an industry exists, it just has to manufacture its own living? Yeah. Is that question sort of like once the genie's out of the bottle, can we ever, or the whatever, the toothpaste is out of the bottle, can we put it back in? I, I would, I do feel like it would be healthier if we could go back to simpler times. I mean, not to sound too much like an old lady, like, oh, if only we could go back to the 80s, you know, like pre, pre-technology. But it does seem like it's gotten to this level where it's kind of out of control. And the fact that people are now leaning out, you know, I don't think people should be uninformed. And so someone like me, like I actually really love the news. I love being involved and informed. But when it becomes too much and too overwhelming, even for someone who likes that stuff, think of all the people who already feel unengaged. I don't know if we can go back there. I think we've become, the news has become very polarized the, and there's just so much information. I don't know how people can sensibly weed through it. Well, it's a good thing that AI can weed through a lot of information and filter it out or filter it down. <laughs> right? um, <laughs> at least that's how we use it, right? We essentially use it as a newspaper editor. So, <laughs> uh, but yeah, that's our next thing is AI <laughs> dealing with AI sensibly. That that's that is our next thing because if you thought BuzzFeed was bad until now. Wait, what happens when BuzzFeed people get the hold of ChatGPT, right? Oh my gosh, that's going to be a whole thing. I actually didn't read all the uh, testimony that the um, ChatGPT founder gave on Capitol Hill, but I, I heard it was really compelling. Well, there wasn't much surprise in it, except that he was very open and very welcoming of regulation, which people didn't mm. expect. But other than that, it's not like he's the only one working on it, right? I, I use Google Bard. It is comparable to ChatGPT. Hmm. I'm sure whatever Baidu has in China is also pretty comparable. So it's not like there's any big secrets in the industry. People are basically doing the same thing. Maybe they have access to slightly different data sets. But for the most part, if ChatGPT can do it, Bard can do it too, give or take a few commas here and there. But yeah, it's interesting how it will affect both the news and content creators that are independent because any traffic that people have been getting from Google so far might just go poof. Yeah. 
And then what about in terms of sort of potential regulation? I, I think this is always an interesting thing too with technology and so many of our legislators are of older gen of the older generation and they don't really understand technology as much. And so it's always kind of a lag of understanding how to regulate something that isn't part of your life. I think the lag is inevitable, right? Uh, the fact that the U.S. has older legislators than most countries increases the lag, right? Mm-hmm. But there's going to be a lag anyway. And specifically with artificial intelligence, if you look at the rate of progress right now, there's new research published every two or three days. And previously, it was once a year, you'd get a big update, right? Uh So things are moving so fast where even if these guys were all in their 30s and with computer science degrees, they would still be unable to regulate it because by the time you pass something, it's outdated. It's, wow. Wow. But yeah, so I used to uh, work on cameras a lot um, back in the day. And some of those cameras kind of were borderline at the point where you had to add a, bl- a blinking LED or something so people know it's there, right? So it it's definitely not eavesdropping. And at some point, I started reading the legislation to make sure, okay, we're trying to make sure we are not doing that. What is that? How is it defined? I saw that the latest legislation on the subject is from 1973, <laughs> before there was digital anything. Right. And so when our lawyer tells us add a blinking LED or don't record audio or do that or don't do that, it's all based on interpretations of a law from 1973. That's how tech is regulated in the U.S. (laughs) 50 years ago. Yep. Amazing. So with AI, it will be even worse to some extent. So I wouldn't expect much from regulation. I'm not keeping my hopes up. Yeah, that's an it's an interesting topic. Interesting to follow it, I guess. Let's go back to stuff that you've observed, because uh, I think okay. yeah, my, my listeners already know basically what <laughs> what we are working on in the tech world. But I'm really curious <laughs> about journalism and content creation, especially the way it has evolved to the current point. So yeah. what other interesting experiences you've had maybe after PBS or in parallel that might illuminate where we are right now? Well, after that, I actually um, decided I wanted to go to graduate school. and. I was looking at um, a program at Stanford. They have in their communications department, they have a master's in communication in journalism and they have one in documentary film. And I was so, everything I had done, it looked like I would go into the journalism program. But I kept looking at the documentary film curriculum and I thought, that's what I really want to do. That's what's interesting to me, not the journalism thing. I looked at all those classes. I thought, oh, it's not as, I kind of, I'm not as interesting. So I applied to the documentary one and, and I got in and I was thrilled because it just seemed like I could take what I've done, but have it be slightly different. So I did that for a couple of years and I just found it was a really wonderful way, super challenging, but a great way to continue to tell stories in, as we were referring to before about podcasts, but a really in-depth way. You can really talk to people, get a viewpoint and really go for it. And just for me to understand filmmaking, so many different ways to make documentary films too, um, history of it. And we got to learn all the entire history. I mean, from we literally cut and spliced film. We, we didn't just do digital. We did it old fashioned way all the way up through digital. So we could understand how 
you know, we could make, we can do it anyway. If, I'm sure now everybody just does it digitally. <laughs> why, why cut actual film? But um, we can if we want to. So that was fantastic, but exhausting. But I think that that is what helped me then eventually these years later led me to want to do a podcast is partly was the documentary film experience kind of capped it off is taking everything I had done before. It informed me wanting to do things in a longer format because working in news, you you do just kind of have to go towards what are the sound bites? What is something that's going to just slowly encapsulate this story? But with, with documentary, you can just explore a lot further. So for the consumer, I guess it's kind of individual taste. I'm someone who would like to read longer format journalism. Some people like to just read headlines. And so maybe that's the difference of the kind of TikTok generation versus maybe wanting to watch documentary films or listen to podcasts or something like that. I mean, I guess there is something for everybody, but I always wanted the behind the scenes, really in-depth stuff. You probably don't want it on every topic though, right? So I would say for every thousand headlines you consume, maybe you want a <laughs> hundred summaries and 10 articles and only yeah. five documentaries. Right? That's true. So my dad is an economist. And I remember many years ago, he gave me and my sister each a subscription to the, Econom- the Economist magazine. I don't know if anyone gets that magazine, but it is has very long articles and they're pretty dense. <laughs> they're, they're, they're really good articles, but they're dense. And I was in this stage of my life feeling like, I need to read every, every magazine I get, every newspaper I get. I, I need to actually really read it. I'm not just going to toss it to the side. And that kind of wore me out. I was like, boy, The Economist, that's taking it out of me. I'm not interested in every one of these articles. So I need to be able to let myself kind of curate what I actually consume. So you're right. I am not interested in absolutely every topic. But um, And who has the time, quite frankly? And now I have, I mean, I have kids. Like, I don't have the t- time to consume everything I'd like to consume. So that's another thing we found that. Once we started working on this, a lot of people were asking, can you summarize articles so I know whether I want to read the whole thing? Yeah. So, so yeah, uh, th- that was a feature that everybody pretty much asked because it uh. seems like The Economist, Vox, there's a lot of these from different sides of the political spectrum and different genres that for some reason think that every article must be at least 2,000 words. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not quite sure. It, it's not always justified. <laughs> yeah, I know. But sometimes the really interesting stuff does come later, but sometimes not. I mean, it's true. It depends on the topic and on the writer. And on what motivated the writer. So I'm a big fan of ProPublica too, right? But still, I'm, I'm pretty sure that occasionally they explore directions that a particular donor asked them to explore. Right? And then the output becomes probably less impressive than their typical work. Aha. Uh-huh. Yes, you kind of have to look at the source. And what potentially triggered it, right? That is that is such an interesting point, though, for all of media. Particularly, it comes up in documentary filmmaking, but you can extrapolate it to news, of course, as well. Every Everything, every piece of writing, every piece of film you see in TV, of course, comes from someone's viewpoint. And there is no objective truth, right? It all, you and I could each report on our interaction right now, and it, there'll be different accounts, right? Even though we're having this interaction together because we're two different people and we have different viewpoints of it. There's no objective truth to anything. There's our experience of it. 
And so in documentary, you really explore that and say, you can look at something. There's certain filmmakers that take what's called like the fly on the wall perspective. And they literally just kind of look at a room and film that. And, but still how they edit that is their perspective. They're going to, they're not just running the film for an hour and a half. They're editing things together. Other people um, are going to put interviews in and what questions are they going to ask? How are they going to splice that together? So clearly documentary comes with a point of view, but so does news. I mean, well, we know that (laughs) sometimes it comes more than other, but you know, which stories you choose to cover, how you cover them, even the people you choose to interview about something, how you choose to ask those questions, um, with what kind of sensitivity. I remember when I was working in local news, I once had to go, oh, it was awful. Because there's such a low population, small population, we had a very large physical ground that we carried, that we covered. So we even covered into Wyoming. And there was a little girl in Wyoming who had been killed. And I had to go talk to the, see if I could talk to the families and people who knew her. And it's just the worst assignment, right? To have mm-hmm. to go. And I just thought, I, I don't want to bug this family. I mean, that it's, this is their grieving period. And, you know, and I just think there's some, this is all these kinds of things. Like, how do you cover something like that? Like, is this my right as a, as a journalist? Is this the public's right to have this family's emotion on the air, you know, and is it my right to go knocking on their door and, so I just think how, how you approach things, how you ask the questions, how you cut those together, it's all someone's viewpoint. Well, documentaries specifically, one of, I was a big fan of documentaries for many years. And at some point I started getting the sense that if the director knows what he or she is doing, they can prove absolutely anything in this genre, right? There's so many tools at their disposal that, all right, 9-11 was an inside job. Cool, Michael Moore can do that, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, veganism is the only correct way to eat. Forks over knives, no problem. <laughs> the opposite viewpoint, same year you'll have a documentary on the opposite viewpoint and you'll be eating nothing but meat for the rest of your life. And it, it just seems like they can prove absolutely anything. And so yep. how can you trust <laughs> what you're seeing if you basically know that they have so many tools to just edit everything they don't like out? Oh, and there's tools. I mean, there's, you put the right music in the right way and you use the right images and yeah, there's, there's a lot of, a lot of ways you can, again, manipulate is a bad word to use, but you can, you can use, I mean, moving images mixed with the right kind of sound is very powerful. It it seems like podcasts are not that bad in that sense, right? Or not as good, depending on (laughs) whose whose side you're looking at it from. But at least in the podcast genre, if you have a viewpoint, you don't have as many tools to just eliminate anything that doesn't fit and make it in the most convincing way possible. Maybe uh, less, fewer filters. Yeah, it's maybe just a a little more raw. Yeah, but I absolutely remember watching some documentaries and thinking, I have no counter argument. I don't know anything about it. And obviously these guys just spent two years researching all the different points that can convince me and eliminating all the ones that can, but this doesn't feel right. Uh-huh. <laughs> like it, it sounds like I'm just being lied to, but I have no tools to defend myself. 
Well, that's a great um, instinct to follow then because documentaries, there's a lot of quote unquote historical documentaries out there too. And, you know, just follow your instincts on that too, because, you know, all of history and how history is told is something we also need to be aware of. That's through a certain lens as well. So we should be looking at and reading various accounts of history. So I think that that's something that we're becoming more aware of. And it's good to kind of have those conversations with our friends or with our kids too. Like just because you saw that movie on that thing, it didn't hit you the right way. Okay, well, there must be more information out there. Maybe that's the benefit of this Uber information age is there's going to be something on the other side you can read probably or consume, watch in some way. And It's a benefit and a downside, right? Because... Yeah. All the voices get amplified and all the voices find the people who happen to believe that particular thing. And now there is a group that believes the earth is flat or something else to that extent, right? So there is a danger in it and it's not clear what we should do to fix it. I I hope we can find the solution quickly, but. Well, I think that's exactly the point that is so challenging and scary is if if there's a large swath of the population that's just choosing to listen to certain things and stay there and not choosing to try to listen to the counter sides or reach across the aisle, then, then we're stuck. Then we just have people who are siloing themselves and staying there and determining that this is my lane and I will not change. I will not open my mind to anything else. And I will only listen to these channels and these voices. And that makes me a little scared. Another thing that scares me a little bit is that there's contrarian voices and then there's complete nonsense, right? And the problem that we seem to be having right now is that the people who are talking about regulating speech in some sense always try to ban the contrarians, not the nonsense. (laughs) So it's much easier to go on Twitter and post something about the earth being flat than to go on Twitter and post something about the Wuhan lab, let's say, which turned out to be true, right? Or most likely true, to be precise, right? right? But it's the contrarian voices that are being banned. And the problem is that every idea that we hold to be absolute truth right now started off as contrarian at some point. Mm. So if you ban all contrarian voices, you will not, be able to generate any new truths Hmm. for the future. So it's, it's like we're attacking the wrong thing. I would want to have some ways to to disabuse people of complete nonsense. Right. But I don't know if that's doable without losing basically all new ideas. Yeah. Which is uh, another frightening thought. We don't want to lose all new ideas. That's the beauty of humanity. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) All right, so uh, we've gone a little bit dark in the past few questions. Let's try to <laughs> brighten so. it up before <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> before we wrap it up. So what's been the most interesting thing in this nonlinear career that you've had? What's been the highlight, the biggest surprise? Um, let's see. The biggest surprise is, I think the highlight is that I get to keep, I don't know if this is a surprise, but the highlight is that I get to keep um, learning and doing creative things because I was warned and I kind of keep being warned that, as you said, it's nonlinear and it's to do something creative and, or many things creative. People say, oh, that's not, 
safe? <laughs> you know, what about benefits? What about, you know, security? What about the ladder of success that you go from this level to this level to this level? And I've more wanted to follow what I think sounds interesting. And so I think what's been satisfying for me is that I've been able to do that. And yeah, it hasn't always been safe. It's been a little bit scary, but I, I feel grateful and happy that I've been able to do it and look back and think I've had some really great experiences by, by following that. All right. Probably a lesson to all our listeners. Uh, at least that is an option. You don't have to do what people expect you to do at all times, right? There's other options. Yeah. But I think also a part of it, and this is something that I uh, kind of explore with like the guests on my podcast who kind of keep fighting through their passions is like, there's a lot of times, as I mentioned, like the lady who told me I didn't have it for, you know, being on TV. There's a lot of times people kind of tell, you no, you know, there's, and this might be in a lot of careers, but I think, and especially in creative things, there's a lot of walls that come up and I, you have to sort of just keep facing them and making that decision. Am I going to let that thing stop me or am I going to try to go through it or around it? So that's the thing I think that's also kind of surprised me is that I've decided to keep going because if, if I looked at myself, like as a little kid, I didn't, I don't think I would have thought that I would have been kind of a risk taker or someone that would plow through, but I became more that way as I got older. And so I think that surprised myself. Is there a secret to that? Is there a way people can learn that skill? It started for me. I decided to, um, my big risk was going across the country for college. That felt like a huge risk for me. I wanted the safety of going to college close to home. And for me, that felt like, oh, what am I doing? And it gave me a lot of confidence that I can do things that feel hard. Um, it's not that big of a risk because you can transfer colleges. It's not like I was going to the moon or something. But for me, it was a big deal because I was very tied to my family. And I think that once you do one thing and realize you can do it, you get that little bit of confidence and then you try something else and then you you know, like I mentioned, I wrote that letter to the guy at the Food Network and I thought, oh, look, that worked. And then, you know, a few years later when I was there, I was like, oh, I'll write that letter to, you know, Diane Sawyer. Right? Like, I just kind of would do these little things like, I'll try that. Why not? I'll just try it. And then you suddenly realize you're kind of a risk taker and you didn't even think you were, but might as well try it. Like it's not hurting anything and you're maybe getting some benefit from it. And so you suddenly realize that you are someone that can lean into change and it feels kind of good. So I, I think it's one of those things that for me, I didn't know it about myself because I hadn't tried. It's like I hadn't flexed that muscle. And once I did it, it started to grow a little bit. And then I realized it felt kind of good to do that a little more. And the only way I've, I've also had a lot of desire. Like I really wanted to do this stuff. It's not like, oh, I kind of want to work in TV or I kind of want to work in film. Like maybe, like I've really wanted to do it. And so if you really want it, you really have to push to, you know, to make it work. So I didn't just fall into it. So that desire kind of keep, keeps me going too. So if you really want to find the cheat code, the cheat code exists. 
All right. Well, Elizabeth, thank, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure. And I hope to talk to you again sometime soon. Thank you. Yeah, I hope so. Thanks. It's been a great conversation. This has been another episode of The Other Web. Join us next time for more discussions about media, news, and the future of the information ecosystem.